to get started. Uh, This is our time together to worship the Lord. And our prayer is that all that we do and say this morning together will be honoring of his name and that we will be able to put aside all those things that might have been distractions this week or even this morning from our worship, our regular worship of the Lord, and be able to lay that aside. It's part of our prayer in preparation worshiping God together as well, isn't it? That maybe that baggage, those things that you have struggled with, that we can just just lay those aside. In a moment, we'll have a time of prayer as we enter into worship where we can ask the Lord to help us do that as well. Because remember, uh, the Holy Spirit who lives within each believer is our worship leader all throughout the week, but then especially together. Because there is something unique and very special about what we call corporate worship, isn't there? When we gather together, we get to hear other people singing, other people praying, worshiping God. We can see it and we can hear it. And it's an important part of our experience as Christians, isn't it? To do this together as a family. And so um, it's a privilege to gather it's a privilege to do what we're about to do. And so here at Trinity, we, uh, we have these core values, these three words that we say a lot, learn and grow and serve, because that's how we pursue being disciples of Jesus Christ. You become a believer as you put your faith and trust in Christ alone for the salvation of your sin. But then do you choose to actually follow him and be a disciple? a follower of him. And when we do, we make that choice. We say that we want to learn and grow and serve and do those things together. We learn the truth, we grow in our faith, and then we serve. And we serve each other in this room and the world outside of these four walls together. Amen? So what I'm going to do now is just read a passage from one of the Psalms in the Bible as our call to worship. And then I'll pray and ask us to stand and we will worship the Lord together through song. Here are the opening words of Psalm 34. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
For I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, we desire to be blessed. We love to be blessed by you, and you love to bless your children. For we want to take refuge in you. Lord, may this place this morning be a place of refuge as we gather together as the church, the body of Christ, to honor you, to show our devotion and love to you, and to encourage each other in our faith in you. But Father, these words, we want them to ring true for us this morning. Lord, we want to taste and see how good you are again. Father, perhaps some of us have forgotten how good you are this week. But Lord, may today be a time of encouragement and challenge. But Lord, yes, we love to be blessed, but we have come here to bless you. We have come here to offer up ourselves to you in worship, for you desire those, those kind of worshipers to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's what we want to do now, for you are spirit and your word is true. God, we come before you now with all confidence before your matchless throne of grace, knowing that you will be honored and blessed. But Lord, we also come with all humility, submitting and surrendering ourselves to you now. May you be blessed through our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's worship the Lord together.
are the one who is all-powerful, and you are the one who deserves all praise and honor and glory. May we always be in awe of you and of the beautiful and powerful, majestic name of Jesus. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a moment to say good morning to somebody next to you. Yeah, perfect. We can go back to the last one. That's good. Um, it is good to be in this place together and uh, to be able to to be able to worship the Lord. And I love to see the fellowship. You know, when I say you can greet one another, right? And it's awesome. And uh, you know, sometimes it's like herding cats trying to get back in, right? And we do it because why? Because we love the fellowship. And I don't want that to ever be lost on us because a big part of what we love to do on a Sunday is be with brothers and sisters in Christ, with people that have come here for that same purpose and that we share the love of Christ and uh, faith in him together. And let's, church, this is just an aside. It wasn't even in my notes, but just please let's, let's not lose that or ever take that for granted because we truly do need each other. And we might not know everybody, of course, you know, we're not all best friends with life and just doesn't work like that, but yet it is so unique that we can come together in a, in a place where we are a church family, we get together and we welcome everyone here, but we do that realizing that we have this common bond in Jesus Christ, and that common bond um, breaks down all kinds of walls. 
and it transcends any kind of differences that we might have. And those differences obviously are real, and um, we're, we're, we look different, we're made differently, different backgrounds and cultures, but you know what? From God's perspective, all the more powerful that unity in Christ is, right? Because that is what God calls for. So we wanna be able to continue to see each other and this community of faith through God's eyes, right? Because we look around and we see all the diversity. So that's a, this is a snapshot, a small picture of what it's gonna be like in heaven, right? Isn't that beautiful? For all eternity, right? And some of you are just like, Pastor Keith, you're not gonna preach for all eternity, are you? No, I will not have to do that. No, my job will be done and we'll just be worshiping the Lord together and enjoying the, the great feast and enjoying being in the presence of the Lord. So let's not forget that, church. Let's always remember the power of our faith community, amen? So speaking of that, just a quick shout out, a thank you to everyone that came together as a, a part of this community yesterday who could uh, just spend a few hours helping to beautify our church, to get some organized and clean and do some projects. So thank you to everybody that showed up. We do this a few times a year, and so uh, if, you're, if you missed it, there'll, there'll be other ones coming up, of course, but uh, just thank you to everybody, because just to take some time out on a Saturday to come and do that. So we appreciate all of you. Um, now, in, in a couple of weeks, I think this is two weeks away, right? That on June 26th, that's a Sunday, uh, at two o'clock, so not immediately after church, but at two o'clock after you get some lunch, um, the missions team is leading another what they call pizza and the gospel, right? And so two amazing things. How can you miss out on the gospel and pizza, right? And so we've done this before. What we do is we just meet. We're going to meet at two o'clock in the center of Lakewood. Uh, details will be given out more that day, but we're going to meet there. And what we do is simply um, the church provides pizzas, a bunch of pizza, and we just kind of gather, whether it's out of the trunk of the car, just on a table there in the center square in Lakewood, and just eat some pizza together and offer it as free, a free lunch to whomever might come up. And the idea is to be generous, to be kind, to be loving, to just offer free food to people that might be in need. But then, of course, in the hopes of not just providing something you know, as, as simple but essential as a, a free lunch, but to hopefully strike up some conversation, to hear people's stories, to hopefully get to share your story, and of course, share your faith in Christ, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we know that happens in many different ways, and we've gone down to Lakewood before and walking around the town praying. We did that last time. But here's another, it's just a different, unique way to do it. And we've gotten so much great response as people come. And yes, sometimes they come because they see it's free food. They bring their kids and that's wonderful. But oftentimes what happens, church, is just in those couple of hours that we're there, it, it creates a safe space. Because you never know what's going on in the minds and the hearts and lives of people as they're walking around. They might look like they have it all together but on inside they're broken and hurting. And I think we can all relate to that. Because don't we also try to go through life on the outside like everything is great and perfect and put together, but on the inside we are desperate. So you never know what God's gonna do. It's just an opportunity to say, hey, come from free food, we're in a local church, and just get to know some people and share the love of Jesus, right? So there's a great opportunity coming up in two weeks. So make sure uh, that you put that on your calendar and there'll be more details about exactly where to meet, but it'll be uh, on the 26th at 2 p.m., all right? And so, 
We continue in our, uh, our journey through the books of First and Second Peter, uh, and uh, the title, as you can see, of our series, which we, we took a break from for the last two weeks. We had some guest speakers, and I hope you were blessed by them, two really good friends who were able to share the Word of God. But we are now back in our series, Following Jesus in a Hostile World. And, you know, I've said before, but all of Scripture is relevant. And it's not my calling to make it relevant to you, it's to show you how it already is relevant. But the books of First and Second Peter, as I hope you've seen already, are specifically, or let's say, um, uh, you know, extremely relevant in our day and age right now. They've always been, but especially now, as most of you can sense and probably have for some time, hostility towards our faith of being Christians is growing and is increasing. But the Bible says that it will, and it should not be cause for alarm or a fear or anxiety. It's a reality check as we read the words of Scripture, and then we start with Scripture, and then we see what's going on in our lives, in our communities, our workplaces, our schools, and the world around us, not just this country, but globally, and we can see hostility towards Christianity on the rise. But see, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is writing these letters, these brief letters, to a group of very new Christians, and the first group of Christians that ever existed, this brand new thing called the church, and they had been scattered to foreign lands, and they were having a difficult time. Because they were like, as Peter called them, aliens. They were the scattered ones. Because they were in a place where they felt like they didn't belong. Do you ever feel like that? But they felt like that because of their faith. So Peter is writing a very practical letter to tell them, first to remind them, as we saw in chapter 1 and in the beginning of chapter 2, who they are in Christ. We need to be reminded of our identity lest we lose it and get caught up in the things of this world and begin to give in to the fear and anxiety right, of living in a world that is hostile to our faith. Because Jesus said it would be, right? This is not just me kind of observing what's going on in the world. Jesus said over 2,000 years ago, he said, the world has hated me, they will hate you, right? So we should expect it as we live out our faith. But Peter specifically is writing to these Christians to encourage them, but also to challenge them to remain steadfast in their faith. And so we saw that in chapter one, being reminded of who we are in Christ, and then chapter two, we started to get into a little more specifics about our conduct and how we are to act in front of others. And so the last time, a few weeks ago, when we were in the end of chapter two, verses 11 to 25, Peter was getting a little more specific, and I'll just kind of remind you of what it was. He was talking about our public witness, right? We, we often think about our lives as Christian as very private, right? Very private in our minds, in our hearts, and no one, you know, can see it. It's just me and God. That's where it starts, Peter says. But he also says we have a public life as a Christian, the one that maybe we don't give enough attention to, and he 
He says, you know what? Our witness to the world is so important in different realms and different areas. So he talked about in light of government, how we should be submissive to the authority of the government on all levels because God instituted government. And then he says, so we should be good citizens in that way. But then he also talked about in the workplace. Now, back then it was more about slave and master. So that's the example he gave. But in our time, we can understand it like in a workplace that we all have bosses, we have superiors at work or supervisors. How are we to act as Christians before them, especially if they are non-believers? Do we look down on them? Do we ignore their, their, their commands, their authority? No, see, Peter is trying to say, in those things, in the different areas of life, we all have to face this idea of having an authority figure above us but being reminded that doesn't mean they are better or more valued. It is something, what's called a divine institution, that God has created for our benefit and because God is a God of order. So he talked about government. God is, it's a divine institution that God created, right? He talks about work. God created us to work. Well, today, church, he's talking about marriage. This is one of those passages. I heard a little uh-oh, right? There are many passages in the Old and New Testament that talk about wives and husbands and how they are to interact with one another. So last night, actually, sorry, this is this morning. I knew it was supposed to rain overnight, but it was about 6.30 or 7 o'clock this morning. I was getting ready to come out to church, and I heard this loud roll of thunder. Did you hear that? It's about the same time. Now, it's interesting because think about it. Like, how do you normally react? Just think about how did you react this morning if you were awake and you heard that? Maybe it woke you up. Somebody this morning said it actually woke them up. What's your first reaction, right? Don't tell me the word that you used when you first put. What's your reaction? Sometimes we, we, we get startled, right? Sometimes we might, we might scream out. Sometimes we... We, we get fearful, whatever it is, right? We react. And so this morning, I heard that, but it was different. It was different because oftentimes it's a loud instant clap of thunder and it catches your attention, right? It might scare you. But this was like a low, loud rumbling and it just kept getting louder and louder and stronger and stronger and it sounded like there was a jet like just slowly passing over my house and the whole house was shaking, so I stopped what I was doing in that moment because it caught my attention and it felt different and it felt like there was an earthquake. And then I thought about that awesome power of God. It really did because it, sometimes in those moments we don't hear it a lot. It reminds us, right? Can you imagine people centuries ago, thousands of years ago, especially who didn't know the one true God, how did they interpret that? What do they think was actually going on? Because it can be scary, but it gets your attention. Didn't we just sing in that last song, right? About the power of God and the rolling thunder, right? It's what I heard and felt early this morning. But even at just that moment, it reminds us of the power of God. Sometimes, church, as we're going through the scriptures, we're reading along, we're saying yes and amen, we're learning about 
forgiveness in Christ and God's graciousness and mercy and his, his loving heart towards us. And we're, yeah, we're taking it in. All of a sudden, we come and we're reading, reading, reading. All it says, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And it's like this rolling thunder that gets your attention. It kind of stops you in your tracks and say, wait a second. This wasn't like sunshine and flowers like it was just a minute ago, right? It stops you and gets your attention. It's where we are today in Scripture. But I have to say that these are those passages that remind me of the importance right, of going through books of the Bible. Not only our personal study, but on Sunday mornings and whenever we gather here, why? Because we look at what we call the whole counsel of God. Because if we don't, we can easily skip passages like this and just say, nobody in church wants to hear about this, especially the wives and women. They don't want to hear what God has to say about this. But when we go through the scriptures and all the writings and the books of the Bible, then it means we can't skip over this, you see? That we are forced to address it and deal with it because we know it's in there for a reason. But I have to say this too. There's also a, a saying which is so true in the studying of Scripture, and it's true overall, the saying is this, context is king. When you're interpreting the Scripture especially, remember the context in which it is written. Because these Scriptures aren't just a bunch of unconnected wise sayings. This is God, remember. This is His Word. And it is in the context of something else, of the words that come before it and after and what He's trying to tell us. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. So I will read it in a moment. It'll be up on the screen. But please, I do encourage you to open your Bibles that you bring to church, or there should be Bibles in front of you on the seat backs there or under the seats. You can open your, um, your app on your phone, your Bible app. But today I want to look at specifically this passage in light of marriage. He talks about husbands and wives marriage and the gospel and how they intersect. So here is what it says. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, just the first seven verses. That's what we're going to look at today, right? We've been talking about authority and talking about, you know, how we are living our lives and it's all well and good. Then we sense that rolling thunder that kind of gets our attention reminds us, wait, God is speaking, and we need to pay attention. Here's what it says, and then we're going to break it down, okay? We'll just spend a few minutes kind of unpacking it together to see what it is that we can glean from this, what the, the Spirit might be leading us to understand better this morning. So this is Peter. He continues. He says, likewise, and we'll get to that word, kind of like therefore, because of what he had been talking about. He says, likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I give you all praise and props for not leaving at this point. But this is the word of God. And as always, as we read it together, may it be a blessing to us this morning. So I just want to unpack this a little bit at a time and see, of course, how it is, as I said earlier, that this particular passage of Scripture is relevant to us. Because all of Scripture is relevant. So remember the context. So I gave you that phrase, context is king, right? So let's step back for a second. So what has Peter been talking about? Remember, he's writing this letter, remember, to Christians, fairly new Christians who are living abroad. They are aliens. They are in a, a society, a culture, the Roman Empire, right? That is, in general, hostile to their faith and growing more hostile. Most scholars believe that at the time Peter wrote this, all of the killings and the torture of Christians has not really taken off yet, as we know that it, it, it became. But nonetheless, they were Christians living in a, in a society where the society was either curious about them, or they were indifferent to them, or at its worst, hostile to them in their faith. Maybe not wanting to do business with them because they seemed so strange and different. We kind of take that for granted, especially in this country that for many years since the founding of this country, almost 250 years, if you can believe it, that we have enjoyed a, a position of privilege as Christians for many of those years and a, a place of acceptance right, and understanding for the most part, but not like, not like um, it's been in other places of the world for 2,000 years. But that's been our context, you see. But here, Peter, and let's make sure we don't miss this, Peter is writing to these Christians who are suffering persecution, being made fun of for their faith, being ridiculed or mocked. See, that's the kind of persecution we might understand in our culture and context more so. And so he's writing to remind them, hey, remember who you are in Christ and how valued you are but he says, in the midst of living, like you're, set, you're a new creature, you're a new creation, you have this faith and this hope, how are you to live? Because they were struggling, and he says, still respect authority, because every one of us has authority in our lives, in different realms. So last time, and, and when we looked at it last, uh, and a few weeks ago, he we talked about the realm of authority in government, right? And then in the workplace, and here, He's just continuing on the uh, illustration as he's talking about authority in the home between wives and husbands. So the first thing we notice, he says, subject to your own husband. So we stop there for a second. Remember this, this is so important, because passages like this church, and we have to admit it, have been misused and abused well, for 2,000 years since it's been written, especially by men. 
to create places of power and dominance where God never intended it to be or to go. Did you hear me on that? And so we know all of Scripture can be and has been tainted and twisted over the years, but we need to make sure that doesn't happen, not in our church and not in our realms and spheres of influence. Because this doesn't say anything about men and women, does it? Nowhere in Scripture, you can't find anywhere in Scripture where it tells us that women in general are to submit to the authority of men. It's in the context of marriage, right? And even in that context, it doesn't mean subservient or to be a servant. See, here's another important thing, church. And I think perhaps we're learning this now more than ever as we hear political debates going on and we, we spend so much of our time on social media. What we are learning is that we need to first define words, don't we? You're gonna get in a discussion with somebody or a debate with somebody or read somebody else's opinion or viewpoint. First, stop, let's be discerning. Let's be discerning Christians, but just discerning in our humanity and remember to define terms first. I've shared this story with you before. It keeps coming back to mind because it's silly but so profound that my son, when he was a freshman in college, had a roommate who was from the South and one night my son said, hey, do you wanna get a couple of pies? I've told you that story, right? And the friend was, the roommate was like, yeah, sure, let, let's get it, what kind? And my son said, how about pepperoni and meatball? And the friend just looked at him like, a pepperoni and meatball pie, what are you talking about? So they went on and on for a minute or two and then they realized that in the South they don't call pizza pies, they call them pizza. But here we might say a pie. So his friend, his roommate, thought he was talking about a pie, like an apple pie or a cherry pie. You see, it was silly, but for those couple of minutes, they hadn't defined the terms. Well, why should you, right? Because we know we get pizza right here in New Jersey, right? You should call it a pie. But see, for those couple of minutes, it was silly, but they used the word pie. One word had a couple of different meanings. Yeah, it could be a dessert, right? Or it could be a pizza pie. But see, the same thing happens on bigger, more important scales, doesn't it? So we need to define terms. So when Peter says, sub, be subject to, or some of your versions might say, submit to, is that a bad word? We don't like to use that word, do we? We don't like to hear it. Submit. Be subject to. But what does Peter mean when he says it? More importantly, as God's spokesman, what does God mean? See, we take a step back and remember this, especially when we're talking about Scripture. Who gets to define terms? Who creates a definition of terms? God does. If God creates government, he defines how we interact with it. If God defines gender, he gets to define, doesn't he? If God creates marriage, does he not get to define the roles and the way wives and husbands interact? See, these are not my words. This is the word of God. This is that rumbling of thunder that gets our attention, that makes us feel a little uneasy, but yet, because we don't skip over it, we have to grapple with it. We wrestle with it and deal with it. 
But I really don't think it's as hard as we might make it out to be. And I don't want to say that just because I'm a man. I'm telling you, as we read the Scripture, and we put all of the Scripture together and not taking it out of context, as we see Peter in the next few verses, you're going to see how he unpacks it and keeps it in context, okay? He says, likewise. He's saying likewise because he's like, remember I was talking about authority in in, uh, government and in the workplace, right? He says, now about in the home, likewise. The same idea, there's authority, right? There is levels of authority. Now, he says, be subject to your own husbands. We stopped right there for a second as well. I keep stopping there, it's important, because we wanna have the right foundation. Also, nowhere else in scripture that I can see, right, does God talk about this outside of the marriage. And he almost always, especially in the New Testament, He puts this type of teaching about wives and husbands in light of other areas of authority. Look at it in Ephesians and in 1st and 2nd Timothy. What you're going to see is that when he talks about wives submitting to husbands, that right before it or right after it, he's going to talk about children and parents and slaves and masters and how we obey the government. You see what I'm saying? He doesn't just single it out. It's in the context, the greater context, of positions of authority in our lives. And this is one of them. So he says, wives be subject to every husband, every man? No, your own husband. See, this is between a husband and a wife. So that, now he gives a reason. Isn't that good? We're glad, right? He gives a reason. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be, and I underlined it, one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So look, here's something else. Remember context is king? See this church that when Peter was writing this, again, I say that these are like the original Christians, right? The first church, the first sort of generation or two of Christians. Just think about this. We look around, I mean, how many more women are there than men in this church and churches in general? There were women becoming believers who were already married, right? This brand new faith movement, they are trusting in Jesus Christ. They are married now to a husband who is not a Christian, an unbeliever. Now first, let's remember this, that was just about unheard of. Because the wives would never have a different religion than their husband. It was just culturally, that never happened. But now you had wives becoming Christians, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they were now finding themselves married to an unbeliever. And Peter is addressing this, because he's talking about authority, he's talking about even the bigger picture, how do we live, church? How do we live as Christians publicly and privately? So now he's addressing this. So he's saying, look, you found yourself as a new believer, your husband is not a Christian. What do you do? Can you imagine? And some of you here this morning might know exactly what I'm talking about. Or we know of women, friends, who are wives whose husbands are not believers, or vice versa. And what does he say? He says, you know what? Don't start acting differently. Because you can imagine, right, the questions that you would start to have. You're married, you're unbelievers, and then one spouse, in this context, the wife, becomes a believer, you start thinking, what do I do? Do I I leave 
my, my spouse? Because now I'm a Christian, I can't be unequally yoked. Do I leave them? Do I start treating them differently? Do I look down? Am I in charge now because I know the truth? See, how does it change the relationship? It's monumental. Peter is saying, continue, wives, to be submissive in the context of a marriage to even, yes, your unbelieving husband. But he says, why? So that even if some do not obey the word, which means for those husbands who are not yet Christians, they can be one without a word, which means, wives, that your unbelieving husbands will be softened to the gospel because of your conduct. But see, this is a general principle for all Christians. That's why he's putting it in here, because he had talked about us in government and in the workplace, right? That we are to conduct ourselves with humility and submission to those in authority over us. Now, God has created this order of submission between wives and husbands. But we only see God creating this order of authority in two places, the church and the home. The church, we talk about Ephesians and 1 Timothy, and we talk about, and in Titus, right, about male leadership in the church, and we see it in the home, in the midst of marriage, and then parents and children, right, about the male authority. But nowhere else, so let's make sure we understand that context too. The scriptures don't say in politics men have to be in authority over women, right? Or in business or any other realm of our lives, scripture doesn't address that because that's not God's plan. It's only in the context of the church and in marriage, and it's in Christian marriage. But now he's addressing a reality. Don't we like that? Because the Bible is real. It talks about real life situations. So he's saying to these women who are scattered abroad and afraid, and specifically those who are now finding themselves as new believers, and they're so excited, they knew, they now have this hope, but yet their husbands are unbelievers. He says, keep, keep respecting them as your husband, because you may win them even without your words by the way you conduct yourself. But that's important for all of us. In verse two, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And in a minute, he's gonna talk more about that purity. Here's what he says. See, in the next two verses, he elaborates on that. What does he mean by pure conduct, right, and respectful? So here's what he says. He's still addressing the wives, right? Whether they're husbands or Christians or not, he's talking to the wives right now. He says, don't let your adorning be external, and he gives an example, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Let's stop there for a second. Let's, let's think about this. We put everything in context, right? Is God saying, through Peter, is he saying that women in general, wives in particular, should never wear jewelry, never wear makeup, never braid their hair, or wear nice fancy clothes? Is he saying that? No. You can't find any scripture where it says that. We take the Bible literally here. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, we read it literally. But of course, in that reading, we know that there are poet, there's poetry, and there's prose, and there's history, and there's, there's accounts, and there's some that are prescriptive, and some that are descriptive, just describing what would happen. Some things that are cultural, because we put all the scripture together, and we let scripture interpret scripture. And we see this, and he says, look, why is he giving these examples? 
He's saying, and this is so important, of course, for all of us, but in particular now he's talking in this context about Christian wives. And he says in verse four, let your adorning not be on the outside. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. Isn't that beautiful? The hidden person of the heart. He's saying to Christian wives, he's saying, yes, you can get dressed up and look nice. There's nothing wrong with that. He's saying, but where's your priority? Where are your motivations? Why are you doing it? And for whom are you doing those things? Those things are perfectly acceptable if your heart is right. He's saying, let your adorning be on the inside. Let it start on the inside. That's where our focus is. The hidden person of the heart. Isn't that interesting when he's talking about our public witness, and now he's talking about marriage, now he's talking about the hidden person of the heart. Why? Because that is an imperishable beauty. But the clothes that we chose to wear this morning, the makeup, the, all the, the, the gel I put in my hair, right? All of that stuff. I go through a bottle every week, right? All of those things, we can do that, and it's nice. We like to look good, and it feels good, right? Did you ever say to your spouse, like, they're going out to work? I've said to Claudia all the time, why do you look so good today? I'm not going to be around. You're going to work. You're going out shopping. What's up with that? Why are you doing that? What are you looking good for, right? And she makes sense, of course. She's full of wisdom, right? I make myself look good, and I feel good. I feel better about myself. That's the same for all of us, right? That's the way we should look at it. But what Peter is saying is it starts with the heart. He says, why? Because that's the kind of beauty that never fades. Our clothes may fade, our makeup, our jewelry gets lost, it gets broken, whatever. It's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, and here it is, here's the exclamation point, which in God's sight is very precious. I said it earlier. When we look at pass any, any part of Scripture, especially passages like this, let's look at people through God's eyes. Husbands, look at your wives through God's eyes. Wives, look at your husbands through God's eyes. Peter's saying, even if your husbands are not believers, still show them the respect that is due them. God created marriage. He created this role, these different roles. But we stop there for a second too. Make no mistake, whenever it talks about submission, right, of wives to husbands, it never once, never once indicates any lesser value. Never. That is, I was reminded of this this morning, talking to somebody as we prayed before service, <clears throat> everything, excuse me, that God creates, <clears throat> Satan wants to either destroy or distort if he can't destroy it. He wants his own version of it. He wants to taint it, right? So it gets twisted. God created marriage in Adam and Eve before sin, right? That was, this was God's design before sin. People might say, oh, this submission thing, you know, it's all because of sin. God created it before Satan came as a snake into the garden, God had his reasons for that. And so we listen to God because he gets to define the realms of within marriage. But you see, never once does it ever mean lesser value or to look down upon. That is a definition to the word submit 
that we have created as fallen, sinful human beings. See? That's never God's heart. That's never his intent. That's why we look at the scriptures as our source of authority. Is that right? And even this, like the importance of knowing the original language. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? The New Testament in Greek, a little Aramaic, and the Old Testament in Hebrew. You look at the original word, and that original word there for submission never means that. And we're going to get to another one of those examples in a second. For this, and he goes on unpacking this, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So he's about to give an example by submitting to their own husbands. Again, their own husbands. This is in the context of, of one husband and one wife in their marriage. Verse six, he gives an example. So Sarah obeyed Abraham. Remember that whole story. Remember, we went through a year or so ago, we went through the whole book of Genesis together. And one of the things that I was just struck by, which I had forgotten about as we go through it, how despicable so many of these men were, right? The way that they would lie and cheat and steal. The way that they even treated their wives. But yet God still used them. We think of David all the time as an example, right? A man after God's own heart, who yet was a murderer and an adulterer. So we see Sarah obeyed Abraham. Do you remember at least twice that we know of in the record of Scripture in Genesis 12 and I think later in Genesis 20? You remember what Abraham did? He lied. He said, Sarah, listen, we're going to this new land, and uh, if they know that you are my wife, they're going to kill me so that the king can take you into the, the harem, and I don't want to die, and so just pretend you're my sister, and I'm going to say that. No, what's interesting is this. Did you know that technically she was his sister, a half-sister? So basically what he was doing is bending the truth. Did you ever do that? This is what we would call kind of like that sin of omission, where we don't tell the whole truth. But we get to the heart, right? Because there's some people that say, well, he didn't really lie. Did he really lie? Well, he did because we know what his intentions were, see? God knows our intentions and our motivations. So he lies at least on two occasions so that why he wouldn't be killed. But you know what the reality was? That the king still took Sarah into the harem. He wasn't really worried about Sarah, was he? He was worried about his own skin. But here is Sarah woman after God, who even followed, we get lost, we lose this too, Sarah, when Abraham was called, Sarai her name was, it meant princess, her name Sarai meant princess, she did not know God, God called Abraham, and she was married to him, she didn't know God, but yet she followed Abraham as he followed God, it wasn't her religion, it wasn't her faith yet, but she followed and she learned, and she came to faith. So Peter is saying, you like Sarah in that way. She called him Lord. It's an old word. We don't go around calling our husbands lords, right? You don't, call, you don't have to. It meant master. It meant um, a sign of respect in that culture. I mean, if you want to, fine, but you know, I don't want to go there with that. So It was a sign of respect. I think we know that. So he's saying, just like Sarah obeyed Abraham. And he says, you're going to be, why, Christian wives, you're going to be like Sarah. He says, and you are her children then, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
See, I think he's also talking about a reality here because in God's order in the Christian home, if the wives are to be submissive to and subject to the husband's authority, does it not put the woman in a place of vulnerability? He's saying that could be frightening, opening them up to being vulnerable. Because of course he's got words for husbands as well. We'll look at that last. But let's make no mistake. Because of this place of vulnerability, women can be more subject to abuse, mental, physical, emotional abuse. God abhors that because that's sin. That is not submitting to authority properly. And when he says be subject to your husbands, it doesn't mean if they beat you and abuse you that you have no way out. It doesn't work that way. Just think about it this way, because that's really a sermon for another time. But think of it this way, church, just remember, What is God's heart in all of this? Can I just say that? If you remember nothing else, what is God's heart? Whenever we read the scripture, where is God's heart in this? Especially when we come to difficult passages like this, that rolling thunder that kind of stops us in our tracks, where is God's heart? We just saw it before. Hey, he's saying, saying, women, don't, don't let your adorning be just on the outside. Let it be on the inside first, because that's an imperishable beauty that God thinks is precious, right? And you don't have to be afraid, because when you are in that right relationship in a Christian home and Christian marriage, he's saying, wives, you shouldn't have to fear anything. Don't live in fear. Why? Because you're hoping God. One more thing, we'll go on to the last part. What's another thing that Sarah did that we can commend her for? Right? She went along with the lie, but we don't have everything written about what she said, right? But what did she do? She followed her husband, even in this new faith, right? But ultimately, and listen, we don't want to miss it, she hoped in God and not her husband. She put her faith and trust in God. Doesn't it say elsewhere that we are to obey God rather than men, men meaning in general, Right? But see, Sarah trusted that God could be trusted. And ultimately, that's where we are. So even in a Christian marriage relationship of husband and wife, ultimately, both spouses are to put their trust and hope in God. Because don't we know, and we could all raise our hands and share stories, right? Don't we know that we will let each other down? It happens because we're imperfect and we are sinful. But Peter is saying, look, Your witness is important. Witness is important. And finally this, and I'll give us some closing thoughts. Likewise, husbands. Yeah, he got the husbands too. He's just like, why why is it six verses for the women and one for the men, right? Go to Ephesians, and it's basically reversed. A lot more about the husbands than for the wives, okay? They put it all in context. Likewise, husbands. So likewise, still talking about authority, subject to authority, Live with your wives in an understanding way. And there's a lot of husbands here being like, how am I supposed to understand my wife? You tell me, right? Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. You want to skip over that? Okay, we'll skip and be done, right? No, I'm going to get to that. Since they are, and look, here it is. Since they are, he always gives a reason. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
Peter is saying, again, the spokesman for God, saying, you know how important this is? That men that make sure that, yes, you respect your Christian wives, you respect your wife in the home, you show honor, and you want to understand your wife and live peaceably. Why? Because you want your prayers to be answered. You want God to hear your prayers. Don't we come before God with the desires of our heart? He's like saying, you want God? You want God to give you the desire of your heart? How about it starts with us giving God the desire of his heart? How about that? We keep the heart of God in the context and at the forefront of it all. Whenever we read any scripture, what is the heart of God? If we went back and looked at Ephesians, we would see before in that great Ephesians passage where it talks about wives submitting to husbands, he says, submit to one another of reverence for God. There is a mutual submission. Submission, but don't get me wrong, God sets up these different roles, right, in the church and in the home. And that's it for men and women. But he says, why? Because here, again, it goes full circle. Remember, I told you that that word doesn't mean lesser. When he talks the, the word submission, that we are to look down on somebody because they're a lesser value. Same thing here, weaker vessel. Women, how does that make you feel? Be honest with yourself, with God. How does that make you feel? The weaker vessel, what on earth? This must be a misinterpretation. The weaker vessel, why would he be saying that? So here, another reason to know and understand the original language, because we, we understand things get lost in translation. Remember I talked about defining terms? How does God define this term? When we look at the original Greek, weaker vessel, nowhere in the Greek word, I won't give you the word, but nowhere in that Greek word is it ever used, right, in scripture or extra biblical resources, is it ever used to mean spiritually, right, or intellectually? It does not mean weaker intellectually. It does not mean weaker spiritually or weaker of any value. It has no context to that whatsoever. It is a general word meaning in general, women physically are weaker than men in general, and emotionally in general, Women are more sensitive to emotions than men. Now, I think we can agree on that. This is in general, because of course there are women that are much stronger than me that I know could take me out in a minute, right? So of course. But what he's saying is in general, we can all understand that. But why is he saying it? I think it actually, I think this is a good thing. This is a very positive thing. Again, we twist it in, in our sinful humanity. We twist the definitions and the meaning. But if we look at God's heart, here's what he's saying. He's saying to the Christian husbands, treat your wives as the princess that she is. Sarah, the original name Sarai means my princess. You know, when God changed her name, he changed Abram to Abraham. When he changed Sarai to Sarah, now it no longer had just the meaning of princess. That meant mother of nations. Does that sound powerful to you? I think she had a big responsibility. What value God placed on Sarah and even changed her name to show it? See what God is saying? She may be the weaker vessel, physically in general, emotionally in general, more given to be emotional. I think we didn't agree to that. So he's saying, husbands, treat your wives as the precious princess that she is. You know, as, and I'll conclude with this, I was a youth pastor for eight years, and Claudia and I love to talk about 
to the to the um, to the students. These were junior high and senior high kids, right? About dating. Because what do they always want to know about? Relationships. Every week, you come in every Wednesday night, you would hear, Pastor Keith, you know who's dating who in this group? And you had to keep track of that. Who's dating who and why? And are the parents going to like this? And oh my gosh, what's this going to mean, right? It's going to divide the church, right? And you're just like, wait, he likes her, she likes him. What's going on? It's crazy, right? It's all about the relationships, you know? And so Claudia and I would often, often talk about this idea and we told our own two daughters, and we would tell all of the girls, the junior high, senior high girls, right, make sure when you find a guy, I don't care if you're just dating them and, and he's just some, you know, goofy, gangly, like junior high boy, right, with acne, whatever, and all of a sudden you're in love with him, right? You're going to marry him. Yeah, that's what they say. Make sure you never settle for anything less than being treated as the princess and precious woman of God that you are because God created you that way. You are a daughter of the king, right? It's about our identity. That's how Peter started his whole book, this whole letter. He's like, remember who you are. Now he's getting specific women. Wives, remember who you are. And he says, husbands, you better treat them the way that I treat them. That's what God is saying. What's the heart of God? He's saying, husbands, you better treat your wives with that respect, with that honor, Yes, because they may be physically weaker so that they're not abused, see? Because they're in that position where they can easily be abused physically or emotionally. He says, treat them with honor, the weaker vessel in that sense, because they are precious. And God says, you know what? They're precious in my sight. They better be precious in your sight. That's what God is saying. And then it comes back to that mutual submission. But look at that. Even he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, how about that? You want God to give you the desire of your heart? Start with giving God the desire of his heart. And that's how we are to treat our wives. Because they are co-heirs. That's the most important thing, right? Most important thing is spiritual, right? Because they are heirs, some versions say, co-heirs with you of the grace of life in God's eyes, Right? We are all equal. We are all heirs. We're all part of that royal priesthood, right? We are all part of that. Does not it say elsewhere that, doesn't it say elsewhere that in Christ, right? Through the gospels, through salvation in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, because spiritually, right? We are all one in God's eyes. It's just while we are here on earth, God has created these different roles, but in an important context. So Peter is talking about authority. And next week we're gonna see, he continues that and he talks more generally about suffering, even in the midst of having to live in different realms where there's authority figures over us, how is it that we are able to then get through that suffering? Here's my last thought, church. I'll ask us to stand and pray. Why did God create marriage. Because here he's talking about in this passage, husbands and wives, marriage. God created marriage, didn't he? Like I said, he gets to define it. Why did God create it? What is the meaning of marriage? Claudia and I, one of the other things we love to do together as a ministry is to do um, pre-marriage counseling. So couples, young couples, usually that wanna get married and uh, they want me to officiate or even just, I've done counseling without officiating the wedding and they wanna go through and say, what does the scripture say about it? We wanna learn, right? 
And so we often use a book by Tim Keller, it's called The Meaning of Marriage. It's a great little book. Why? Because it talks all about not just how to get along, who's going to take out the trash, who's going to do the bills, you know, what do you do if you like it cold and you like it hot and, you know, you like the bed soft, you like it hard, all those things. Those are important things, right? We get to those things. It's fun to talk about. But in this book, we talk about the most important part, the meaning of marriage. And, you know, basically summarizing his take on it, which I, I, I believe is completely biblical, is that why did God create marriage? It is to be a picture of the gospel, Because in marriage, we are called to sacrificial love. Christ died for us, a sacrifice on the cross, gave himself up for us sacrificially, right? We talk about unconditional love in a marriage. Did God not love us? Does he not love us unconditionally? But see, as Peter is talking about our public and private witness, our marriages as Christians are supposed to be a picture of the gospel, the way that we treat each other. Did not Jesus say, and we covered this a few weeks ago to his disciples, I have a new commandment for you. During the Last Supper, love one another as I have loved you, right? Did he also not say that that the world will know us, that we are his because of the way we love each other? But it's the same in the context of marriage. See, our Christian marriage is a witness to the world, but how we treat each other So be careful, husbands and wives, when you're out in public in front of your kids, how do you talk to each other? Do you respect each other? Do you build each other up or tear each other down? We all have our moments of weakness. We all give in to the coarse joking and the the things in our heart we haven't let go of. That fight from two days ago we have not yet let go of, right? We need to be careful because God created marriage for many beautiful reasons, but I think ultimately to be a picture of his love. Do you agree with me? A picture of his love, which is full of grace and full of mercy, right? Remember, we follow Jesus' example through it all. Jesus submitted to God the Father. Does it make him less than God? No, he was God. Jesus submitted to Joseph and Mary, his earthly parents, but yet he was God. He could have completely usurped their authority, but he didn't. He lived, and he gave us an example. Church, let's stand. Let us always follow the example of Christ and remember the heart of God in it all. It always comes back to the gospel, even in places of authority and how do we live following Jesus in a hostile world, right? Let's be careful of how we live, because we are witnesses to Christ, right? Publicly and privately, we give him all the glory. Father, thank you for this time together. Father, thank you. We we often pray that we'd be encouraged, but yet challenged. I think you challenged us, Lord. Some of us may leave here and have even more questions than we had coming in, but Lord, I pray, Father, that all of us would continue to dive deep into your word to learn more and more about your heart in all things. But God, may we love others the way that you love us. May we see others the way you see us. Father, I pray right now, specifically as we close, I pray for strength and courage and wisdom and discernment for all of the wives that are here. God, may they know your heart for them, that their internal beauty can never fade and never be taken away, and that is what you cherish most. 
May every woman here know how precious they are in your sight. That masterpiece, that work of art that you call all of us. But Lord, may the women here know how beautiful they are to you. And Father, for the husbands here, for the men, may they, Lord, continue to desire to understand the women in their lives, the, the, their wives, so that they may honor and respect them and cherish them and handle them, Lord, as the beautiful, precious women that they are. And Father God, we know that that is how you define true manliness and manhood. So God, may we continue to define terms the way you do as we search the scriptures. And Father, may we leave this place now being witnesses, not only in our own homes privately, but publicly to our community and to the world. Witnesses for you and for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And for those things we say, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Let's go in peace, being his witnesses. Rise and fall